0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The United States has set ambitious carbon dioxide reduction targets in the fight against climate change. These targets include cutting economy-wide carbon emissions in half by the end of this decade and the goal of powering the country with carbon-free electricity by the year 2035. Many challenges lie ahead in meeting these targets including the need to accelerate the deployment of renewable energy and a host of supporting technologies and infrastructures, from battery storage to energy efficiency solutions. What's clear is that the transition to a clean energy system and broader economy will be fueled by massive investment from government and industry and through the provision of green finance from banks and investors. On today's podcast, we're going to take a look at how one major bank views the opportunities presented by the transition to a low-carbon economy. My guest is Brian Lehman, the head of Green Economy Banking at JPMorgan Chase. Brian will talk about the challenge of defining clean and sustainable investment in an age where uniform sustainability standards don't yet exist. We'll discuss how government policy might accelerate climate finance and look at the types of energy projects and technologies that are attracting one banker's attention. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Andy. You know, Brian, to get us started, I wonder if you could, for the benefit of all of us who aren't bankers, give a brief introduction to what your Green Economy Banking Group does And explain the role that the group plays for companies in the clean energy and sustainability space.
1: Sure, I'm happy to. And maybe what I could do is also put the green economy strategy for J.P. Morgan in the context of the broader J.P. Morgan climate initiative. And so it started about October of 2020, where J.P. Morgan made some broad sweeping announcements First, aligning ourselves with the Paris Agreement. Secondly, establishing what's called the Center for Carbon Transition, run by good and close partner of mine, Rama Koval, where the responsibility of Rama and his team is really to transition the bank and our lending practices to a lower carbon future and uh, do so in a transparent, observable, trackable way. And to follow through with that, early last year, we made bold commitments, in fact, $2.5 trillion towards sustainable initiatives. And within that, $2.5 trillion over the course of the next 10 years, we committed a trillion dollars towards green initiatives. And that's where the green economy comes in. Our mission is to commit, raise capital on behalf of our clients and really how that translates in simplistic terms is to lend money and to serve our clients in raising capital in the capital markets, whether that's raising debt or equity in the public or private markets. And really that's the goal of the green economy. And specifically, what is the green economy? It's a banking team with industry specialization, product specialization, focused on five verticals where the common thread is to help decarbonize the globe by promoting those technologies. So the first is renewable energy. Renewable energy is a broad industry and the way we characterize it, it's, it's incredibly broad where it's not just the producers of clean energy or clean technologies, it's the manufacturers of the equipment that would go into producing clean energy It's also sustainable finance, which is the second vertical. And really what that means is anybody who's putting money to work within the green economy, it could be permanent capital vehicles, it could be solar finance companies, um, it could be venture capital, late stage growth, private equity, that sort. And so we want to make sure that we have deep-seated relationships with those who are incented to place their bets in the technologies that are completely necessary to decarbonize the world. The third is food tech and ag tech. And so think for food tech, it would be alternative proteins, even insect protein. For ag tech, it may be robotics, vertical farming. This is a critical part to really bringing our food system into the information age and uh, do so in a very efficient way. So, Moving on, it's also efficiency technology. Efficiency technology is a term that basically is focused on technologies within the industrial complex where these technologies will help reduce the carbon footprint. Think technologies that might ultimately help re- reduce carbon emissions from the creation of cement or steel, the production of it. And lastly, uh, clean energy mobility. So really that's transportation electrified, whether it's boats, barges, vans, vehicles, right, for consumer or commercial use. And so it's a broad sweeping coverage effort, but with very much a focus on those industries and all the companies within it.
0: That's a a broad swath of industries that you described right there. And I guess those would all be opportunities within the green economy as, as they'd be defined. From the perspective of financial institutions and you as a bank, what is your role then, or of financial institutions generally, in your view, in fighting climate change?
1: There are so many ways to answer that question. What what is our role? I think J.P. Morgan has a specific role and responsibility. Being a, a bank with near three trillion dollars of assets, touching every industry in every corner of the globe. We have a responsibility to focus on uh, our shareholders, our communities, in such a way that is wildly differentiated, at least in my view, versus other institutions that might be banks or non bank financial institutions. And so it all ties together where, uh, and this is bringing forth the initiatives that uh, my partner, Marissa Buchanan, who is the head of sustainability at JP Morgan. Right She sets the course for the strategy of JP Morgan and how it touches uh, each part of uh, global and uh, national policy. and And so, having a seat at the table as a policy matter, I think is incredibly important as it relates to JP Morgan. Then reverting back to Rama Varian Koval and the Center for Carbon Transition. The responsibility that J.P. Morgan has is to commit to shareholders that we have, and to clients, that we have a game plan for moving our clients, and as a result, given that we're a client-focused institution and we lend money to clients where those loans sit on J.P. Morgan's balance sheet, and us making a commitment to our constituents, whether it's regulators or or investors that we are going to change the way we're doing business by being focused on migrating our lending practices to a lower lower carbon future. That's a responsibility that JP Morgan has. But then tying in the green economy, our responsibility is to accelerate those technologies by attracting capital to the best ideas and to make sure that we can act as advisor in delivering the firm to those clients wherever they are in the United States, North America, and the globe.
0: Now, you're with the largest U.S. bank, and obviously you see a lot of opportunities for transactions that come across your desk. What types of green opportunities excite you most from from
1: a banker's perspective? The ones that carry the greatest impact. And I have to, it's almost like uh, being a father to five children, right? There, there aren't any particular favorites between those five verticals that I mentioned to you. And I do have a, a background in financial services and covering uh, banks and non-bank financials. And so companies that can help be the fuel, sort of every pun intended, in accelerating right, the path towards a carbon neutral future, those things really, really excite me. But even the the companies that are creating new technologies that would help do that it, it's it's just hard to separate one from the other in terms of which one is most exciting to me and what I would probably uh, share with you though is that each of these verticals have their own story to tell they are at different stages of, of their respective life cycles and what I mean by that is let's take renewables even as a as one of the five industries they're are so many sub-verticals or ecosystems within that renewable sleeves where you might have more traditional technologies, if you will, in, say, solar, whether it's residential or commercial. Solar panels have been around for quite some time. Business models have been around for some time, and uh, that is a reliable technology that can be more predictable from a cash flow perspective, from... The production right, of energy from those solar panels is far more predictable. And you can contrast that to some of the more progressive technologies that we focus on within renewables. It could end up being hydrogen. It could be storage technologies. It could be direct air capture, right? Taking carbon out of the air, right? There are technologies that, even including nuclear fusion, where there are companies out there that are putting billions of dollars to work in these technologies that still require a long lead time to commercialization. So long-winded way of saying, Andy, they all excite me. And uh, it doesn't make that much of a difference between business models that might focus on more traditional technologies or the more progressive ones.
0: As I was preparing for this episode, I did a quick Google search of the term ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And and I found that it really has many definitions. They're related, but they're not precisely the same. And and I think this really reflects a larger current reality, and, and that is that there is no real hard and fast definition for what counts as ESG positive and what qualifies as an ESG risk. So, my question is Are there policies that you at JP Morgan have in place to ensure quality control here? And in, in other words, to ensure that companies and projects you may be financing are indeed sustainable? Really interested in hearing about that.
1: So, one of the hallmarks of JP Morgan is the rigor that we apply to situations you're just articulating and the responsibility we have. To our shareholders, our constituents, our regulators, to when we do things that we do it right. And I'll tell you, there is a team, an an army, really, of risk minded professionals, both from the front office like me to the middle office and the back office, making sure that what JP Morgan has represented in the public domain is observable, it's relied upon, and that it's accurate. And so, uh, what i would tell you is we are with the commitments that we've made around how we're migrating what j p morgan looks like today to a lower lower carbon future that level of disclosure there's an amazing amount of rigor as to how we go about tracking that so it's inventory of all the products that j p morgan might ultimately execute providing a green loan raising capital on behalf of a client We need to make sure that there's a risk and control environment in place to make sure all of that gets tabulated appropriately so what we represent to the public is relied upon.
0: What would be the Green Economy Banking Team's monitoring process for borrowers? And over what time horizon are you measuring sustainability performance?
1: Well, so there are third-party advisors, consultants that might evaluate a business, for example, or its activities uh, along some metric for sustainability. And so J.P. Morgan's role is not necessarily that, as much as it is saying, let's take a more local view. We have a framework that basically says what falls into the green economy is a framework that relies on whatever products or services that company produces that it's more green than not. You have this preponderance test. And so if it is majority green, what they do, let's again go back to the very simplistic example of a wind turbine manufacturer. Their sole purpose in life is to produce the equipment that would go into producing clean energy by virtue of right the turbines that spin around when wind blows and produces energy that is what we believe is if for example we were to lend to an entity like that or to raise capital for that entity that would qualify as green and so whatever the notional amount whatever the dollar amount of that capital raise or that loan commitment that gets tabulated and we do that at the client level roll it up to the portfolio level, to the line of business level, to the firm level to produce those results.
0: Much has been said about the link between environmental risk and material credit risk. In other words, the extent to which environmental risk raises the likelihood of default. I'd like to give a little bit of a different spin to this question. And because we are an energy policy podcast, ask you how interlinked is policy risk Material credit risk, particularly over the coming decade, we have so much uncertainty. For example, in Washington, about climate and clean energy policies going forward, particularly at this juncture, right. So, how do you Mm -hmm. figure an unpredictable energy and climate policy landscape into your lending decisions?
1: So, we try to anticipate as a lender uh, what is sort of the the base case. The bear case and sort of the bull case. Less of an emphasis there is on the bull case because for lenders, you effectively provide the loan with the hopes that you get the money back. That is the principal focus. And so, on that basis, policy certainly is a risk factor. And then it really is a function of what that policy is, how long standing it is, what we can glean in terms of. Uh, you know, where we anticipate those changes, if if any, taking place. And uh, we can provide, there are a number of examples, but the investment tax credit that uh, residential solar folks get when they elect to put solar on their rooftop, right? That That is a savings that accrues to the benefit of any consumer who puts solar on the rooftop to the extent that that goes away or changes. Uh, Or is phased out. Of course, it's going to have an impact as it relates to the adoption of residential solar on rooftops. And it may ultimately have an impact, for example, on those who are originating or installing those pieces of equipment on the rooftop. Right. So that's one prime example of what we might look at. It's a risk factor. Now, as the market matures and as the company matures, hopefully there would be more diversity, more predictability of cash flows, such that if and when those investment tax credits or those policy decisions that would have a direct impact on economics, if those things get phased out, these companies can stand on their own from a credit standpoint and uh, are credit worthy. Where, while yes, the risk factors have ultimately changed, there still is a strong body of work that would suggest J.P. Morgan should extend a loan with the anticipate with the anticipation of getting paid back.
0: A little bit more honing in on this one: T- to what extent is this a make or break for some of your decisions? The policy aspect.
1: We tend not to hang our hat on as a source of repayment a single policy decision. It is a factor but not the single factor to an underwrite or a decision to lend right so th- there are credits it's not just investment tax credits but there are credits for uh, lower carbon fuel standards for renewable natural gas as an example and and that could ultimately translate those credits into currency. Right, actual cash that would help the credit profile of any particular loan arrangement. To the extent that policy changes the value of those credits, it might go for a lender, it might go against a lender. We take that into account, but we tend not to build our thesis solely on the basis of, say, the cash flow that's simply generated from those credits on a standalone basis.
0: You know, loan covenants are contract terms that I guess define the activities that a borrower is allowed or not allowed to engage in. I wonder if you could give me an example of a sustainability-linked loan covenant that you think is particularly effective in ensuring that projects are and remain sustainable. And this gets back to the question I asked you about five minutes ago, but um, really want to understand a little bit more how this is baked into the, to the covenants themselves.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, at, at this point in time, right, thinking about sustainability-linked loans, there is or are features that can be incorporated into the loan document that would say, okay, Andy, if you're going to borrow from me, at a spread of 100 basis points over a reference rate. If you can achieve certain milestones around, let's just call it emissions avoidance, and we can be particular, we would be particular in those loan documents as to what those milestones are. Those would be metrics. Is that right? Those, Those are metrics, correct. And we can go through the process as to how those metrics are determined, how they're Verified, right? There are consultants, third parties that come in to evaluate sort of the arrangement and the feasibility of that in terms of the ability to track it objectively, where it's not the company saying, hey, I did that, trust me, or the bank who may not have the wherewithal the way a third party would to verify that data. Having an outside objective party saying, this makes sense, this is observed or not. And as a result, Andy, your original 100 basis point spread, if you meet these avoidance metrics, goes down by five basis points. Instead of borrowing at a 100 basis point spread, you're borrowing at 95 basis points. So there are some savings for the positive observance of these metrics in terms of emissions avoidance. That's an example.
0: You know, it's really interesting because as a banker, you are the potential enforcer of sustainability, right? It sounds like. So these savings that you just spoke about, that is the enforcement mechanism. That's the carrot and the stick all at once, it sounds like.
1: It is. And there's an alignment there, right? JP Morgan and other banks would be willing to take a lower return for the capital provided to that client in support of these ESG metrics. And so that's what I love about this. Now, what is even more interesting in my mind is not the few basis points that could be saved in a credit context that I've articulated, uh, or I would say at least as interesting as that is how the capital markets over time has responded to green bonds. And so just taking a cohort of green bonds where the proceeds from the issuance of those bonds would be earmarked towards green initiatives broadly, and again, you have these consultants, these third parties that go and verify what those are, so folks can ultimately trust that they are in fact green bonds. The proceeds are going in for green initiatives, whether it's to build a the the next wind farm or solar project or anything else. Right, that investors can trust in these green bonds to actually being green, the market has over time rewarded the issuers for those green bonds in a more material way. And so what started out as uh, just a qualitative benefit where there really wasn't much of a distinction in pricing benefit to issuers with that green bond uh, rider, if you will, now it's far more material where there's this investor appetite that is rewarding issuers for taking the proceeds of any debt issuance and plowing it into these environmentally friendly practices.
0: That's exciting. You know, ESG is, is about environmental performance, but it's also very much about social equity. So, you know, I want to ask you, to what extent are social and, I guess, energy equity concerns a guide in your evaluation of potential funding opportunities?
1: I mean, I would just say it's a huge deal. And I mean, we we can focus on maybe two areas. Uh, I, actually, let's focus on three of those verticals. The first is uh, renewables. What we really are focused on is how access to renewable energy can uh, impact sort of the, the communities at large, right? And so it is harder ultimately to underwrite away from what are called prime borrowers and the prime borrowers are the folks with the higher fico scores that um, you know that they of course need to lower their bills as it relates to converting from traditional utilities to solar but that cost savings is going to make that much more of a difference to someone who may not have the same prime borrowing characteristics as in higher income More discretionary cash. It's so much better to provide solar, as an example, and those associated cost savings to folks who aren't in the affluent category. And so we pay particular attention to originators, installers of those residential solar panels, or maybe it's community solar panels or arrangements that would uh, accrue to the benefit of more than just simply the affluent and the creditworthy or most creditworthy. As it were. So I, I would say that's one example within the renewable sleeve. Let's also focus on food security, right? Food tech and ag tech. If we can really put our eggs in the basket of vertical farming, let's say, or indoor farming, where it's a focus on delivering healthy food more reliably right? You strip out the seasonality of farming. Um, You have a controlled environment internally that's closer to urban centers. Having that food security and having that food access is incredibly important. And I love, J.P. Morgan loves, the stories that really support and promote food security and provide folks who might not otherwise have access to healthy food alternatives that access.
0: Are there specific programs that your that the bank has or your group has to accommodate these these groups? Uh, you talked about urban uh, solar. You're talking about you know the food challenges here. Curious, are there are there programs for those?
1: Well, so we have a team of folks who are focused on affordable housing, focused on the social elements to banking and those associated communities, even minority depository institutions. We've made investments, equity investments in those institutions. And the green economy is part of that uh, community impact group. And so what we've created is a team of folks who have the ability to bring all of that together. And so the, the answer is a lot of those activities are specifically in the works. As a prime example, J.P. Morgan is planning community-based initiatives at the grassroots level because we have such a, in the United States, we, we have a vast community presence. And that's what's really exciting and brings back the notion of the first word that comes to mind for me, a privilege to work at J.P. Morgan, to have that foresight and have that impact, not just on the global scale, but within specific communities.
0: J.P. Morgan has a very substantial book of loans to companies in the fossil fuel industry. I wanna ask you how you think about transitionary companies such as oil and gas companies that are getting into, for example, enhanced oil recovery or blue hydrogen production, or more broadly, industrial companies that need to decarbonize. How do you think about ESG risks in underwriting criteria for these transitioning companies?
1: So my focus, Andy, is really on the companies on the most progressive end of the energy transition. We do have bankers focused on companies who are at different points of their energy transition. And I would only say that JP Morgan, with the broad reach that we have, touching every industry in every part of the globe, has historically supported companies in the fossil fuel industry and will continue to. And then the natural question is well does Does that have an impact to Brian Lehman, right, and all of our green economy compatriots? My response to that is JP Morgan, with the level of thoughtfulness that we have around this migration, right, encouraging companies to wherever they are in the energy transition to get to a better place, JP Morgan has the responsibility to support the clients so long as those clients are incented the way we are to make a difference and so we will advise we will support companies along that transition at wherever they are i'm excited by that i'm also sober about it it's not as if we're going to flip a switch in 2030 and then 100 percent of the world is going to operate on solar and wind it it's just not feasibly possible and so Fossil fuels will very much be a part of the energy future. And uh, we need to make sure, though, that there are technologies that will help with abatement and reduction, if not elimination, of the emissions that come from those activities.
0: You know, I'd like to hone in on some of the policy catalysts again here for for green finance. And and from your perspective, uh, what key action or actions might regulators, legislators, uh, take at this point to catalyze investment in climate positive technologies. Is is there a hurdle, a policy hurdle, that you would like to see overcome or removed?
1: The hard part, Andy, is then if I put too fine a point on that question, then it's potentially pitting me against uh, the actual policymakers and uh, also front-running sort of JP Morgan's position. What I will share is that there, there's not any single policy that is a make or break. Yes, of course, the Build Back Better uh, bill, is that significant? Of course it is. And would sort of those in a seat like mine be incented to see, the in large part, that bill get put into law, yes, it would be helpful. It would be helpful to our clients. It would be helpful for the broad sweeping level of support that we see uh, at the grassroots level for all the work that we're doing. My position, however, is that it, it takes that and more, right? And so there is a level of activism that has taken place at the state level, um, at the national level, at the global level. And it's ultimately undeniable. And so I don't simply rely on a a single piece of policy uh, to really impact the outcome of what I believe is going to take place, which is the decarbonized future. Um, And and maybe I'm naive in that, but it's so darn important. And there's so much support that I see for uh, what we're doing and what others are doing around decarbonizing the globe, that it's going to happen. And here's the other piece, Andy, what I think is really important. Capitalism needs to be the voice in support of policy. And in some cases, the voice needs to be louder than policy. Policy helps, but it can't be the single reason why there is a success story to decarbonize decarbonization. It, it really needs to be This is why I believe my role is so darn important at J.P. Morgan. Uh, It really needs to be success stories. Who is the next Elon Musk? How do we get these technologies commercialized at scale so that investors are happy because they're making money, so that consumers are happy because they're using that technology? It's making their lives easier. It's saving them money. That's what we're in it for. And so if I and my seat can promote that form of capitalism to really have that network effect, we may all rely less on policy decisions to change the outcome of our future.
0: Let me ask you one final question here, Brian, if I may. What breakthrough technologies, in your view, need the most help right now?
1: I go back to you asking the question around what are the companies that are most exciting uh, the technologies that uh need the greatest care are the ones that can have the greatest impact against the climate change issue so i i think specifically a few technologies uh direct air capture right if if we think about the whatever the actual figure is but it's in excess of uh 50 billion tons of emissions into the air into the atmosphere every single year that's a problem and i i Worry also because of the mix of energy, as we've talked about, fossil fuels being a part of the energy future going forward. If we can find a way to land the plane on a technology, scale that technology, like direct air capture, and have plants that specifically remove carbon directly from the air and storing it underground, there are companies that do that right now and our scaling, attracting capital to scale even further, it will help ameliorate the issues that we've identified and ideally reverse the impact of climate change on this earth. So that's one. The other is nuclear fusion, right? When you're thinking about ways to produce electricity without the associated emissions impact, that's a technology that really can make a massive difference at scale. Now, the challenge with these progressive technologies is it requires a level of patience on the part of investors. It requires vision on the part of investors. The carrot is that it is one of the most attractive, largest addressable markets that an investor could ever dream of. And then it's ultimately about executing, taking the capital, investing it wisely into technologies that can ultimately scale. And scale means generate revenue. Scale means generating profit. And many of those progressive technologies will take time or operations will take time before they do so. Brian, thanks very much for talking. Andy, thanks so much for having me. I love what you do. Keep up the good work.
0: Today's guest has been Brian Lehman, head of Green Economy Banking at J.P. Morgan Chase. Thanks for listening to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy. Before we finish up, I'd like to send special thanks to our editorial assistant, Nick Rolitor, for his help in producing today's episode. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd like to ask if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help us get word out about the podcast, and we appreciate it. The help. Thank you very much for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day.